This is CliffCentral.com. The Daily Maverick Show on CliffCentral.com. Good afternoon. You're tuned into The Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. As usual, my name is Kingsley Kipuri, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Joined by a very, very special guest, um, a former priest um, of 18 years, a sociologist, and author of a groundbreaking research uh, about systemic sexual abuse by Catholic priests. If you've seen the movie Spotlight, and I highly recommend that you do, you may recognize some of his research and findings um, as a voice, uh, we don't see the face, but as a voice that aided the Boston Globe journalists to be able to publish uh, evidence of this widespread sexual abuse that went on to win a Pulitzer Prize, um, and then now the recent movie that, that, that was released quite recently. Anyway, with no further ado, I'd like to introduce Mr. Richard Sack. Richard, thank you for making the time to speak with us. I'm so happy to be with you. Okay. Fantastic. Um, now, Richard, I'd love if we could start, you know, way from the beginning. And I'm quite curious to hear about your growing up and, and whether the church played a role in, in your formative years and in your family and, and so on. Yes, uh, that's very easy. I, I was one of 10 children. I'm the fourth oldest. And uh, I got interested <laughs> in uh, a monastery um, uh, 70 miles from our home because priests used to come from there and help on the weekends. And it was an awfully good place to go to school. So I started going to high school there when I was 13 years old. Uh, That was in 1946. And I went on to join the monastery. I became a monk, became a priest. uh, And uh, part of my training was in Rome. And then uh, after I was ordained, the abbot asked me uh, to train in the mental health problems of Roman Catholic priests. Uh, So at that time, in the 1950s and 1960s, there was a growing awareness uh, among the United States bishops and Mm. superiors and so on Mm. that there were a lot of mental health problems in the priesthood. And so I went away for training and uh, I began collecting data in 1960. And I also then from 1967 until 1984, consistently I was on the uh, staffs of three major Catholic seminaries, Mm. a typical seminary, a Benedictine seminary and a Jesuit seminary. Mm. And all that time I was treating uh, seminarians, priests, uh, people who had been victims of priests' uh, abuse. And by uh, 1984, I had enough data that I felt I understood some of the dynamics that went on in uh, the celibate sexual struggles of Roman Catholic priests. And um, I went to uh, the bishop, archbishop, who was head of the bishop's commission in the United States, the USCCB, and I gave him my data. Mm. And he said, well, uh, maybe you should go and talk to some more people. <laughs> and so in 1990, I decided to publish all my data, and I did under uh, the title of A Secret World, Sexuality and the Search for Celibacy. 
there was uh, and perhaps still is a priest in South Africa, but in, uh, Victor Kortz, uh, who also wrote a study that I became aware of. Mm. Both of our studies said that between 45 and 50 percent of Roman Catholic priests uh, are no longer practicing celibacy. Uh, they're still priests, but they're not practicing. Mm. In 1993, uh, I believe we were both in Rome uh, for the International Conference on Celibacy, and the BBC interviewed uh, Cardinal Jose Sanchez, who was head of the uh, discastery, the uh, Vatican discastery on clergy, and they asked him, Cardinal, what do you say about these studies that say between 45 and 50 percent of Roman Catholic priests at any one time are not practicing celibacy? And he said, and I quote exactly, I have no reason to doubt the accuracy of those figures. Wow. Now, so all that we've studied has been no for so long, but the church has not changed one bit. Jeez. Okay, so you're here, I mean, you, 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 you find these findings that up to, you know, one in two priests is not actually practicing celibacy. Did this surprise you based on your time um, in the monastery? Was this surprising to you or based on the relationships you had, did it sound like, you know, what you expected? You know, it was surprising to me. It was not only surprising, but I felt because of my uh, work in the seminaries and my efforts to teach mm -hmm. celibacy, uh, that uh, I thought that the church would be very happy with my with my. <laughs> How? How did you? Why would you think that? <laughs> uh, I felt that. Look, you know, this is the fact. Uh, let's work on this. Let's be happy with this and and do something with it. But uh, uh, as you know, <laughs> uh, not much has changed. I mean, I hear you, and I mean, I'm still trying to put myself in your shoes, and and I'm trying to think. At what point did you realize that the study you'd been commissioned to do? Was, was going in a very different direction. I mean, you start following the mental health pursuit. It now becomes, um, uh, uh, you know, some interesting statistics around celibacy and who's actually celibate. And next, you're now, you're now discussing the, the, the celibate, the celibacy and how this links to child abuse. So wh when did you yes. realize that, that, that the study you were going to publish was not really the study that you started out to publish? Oh. Well, uh, uh, in, in my figures, mm. Uh, among the priests who were not being celibate, mm. I discovered that about 6%, uh, now I say between 6 and 9% of priests, uh, American priests, at any one time, mm. get involved with sexual behavior with children. Um, it was just one of the factors, because I took it from a behavioral point of view. I didn't take it from a a diagnostic point of view or a psychiatric point of view. Uh, I didn't judge it from that. Uh, sex with children, sex with men, sex with women, uh, sexual experimentation. So could you explain what you mean by that when you say you took it from a behavioral point of view? In, in, in layman's terms for people like me, what does that mean and why is that, why did, why oh, is that important? 
Well, it, it's, uh, it is in layman's terms, rather than saying pedophilia, okay. uh, which may be, but that's a psych, psychiatric diagnosis. Okay. Okay. So I take it, these are men who are having sex with children, okay. you know, regardless of their diagnosis. Okay. So once that came out and was published, uh, I began getting requests from lawyers uh, to be uh, an expert witness in cases. And that opened up a whole new, uh, I say vocation, but it's uh, a whole new method of, of suffering because I was faced with these facts and faced with more and more documentation mm. of, uh, of the sexual abuse and the covering up by the church. And that's, of course, my main point, is that the church is still covering up. Look, Kingsley, this is a problem. Sexual abuse of children is a problem that goes back and recorded from the year 60 in the Didache uh, and from the uh, earliest recorded council of the church of Elvira in 309 that some priests are having sex with minors, and they specifically uh, focus on minor boys. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Peter Damien wrote to uh, Bishop Leo, uh, uh, I mean Pope Leo X, and said, "Look, we have a big problem. There are lots of priests having sex with minors, mm-hmm. and uh, especially boys." And said, "Look, this is a, a violation. This is." Um, a really a spiritual uh, sacrilege uh, that the priest with the baptized person would uh, uh, would have sex. And of course, the Pope said, well, if it's only one time, it's no big deal. If it's repeated, then it's a big deal. And again, that has been the response over and over and over in the church. Well, it's a sin. But, you know, you and I know, we live in civilized societies. We say, this is a crime. This is not just sin. Uh, It is sin, sure, but it is a crime. And it must be stopped. The church defends it, regardless of all the papers that it puts out. In fact, I read just recently uh, a statement that uh, the bishop of South Africa uh made a letter that he sent about the movie. Uh, and he says, the movie uh, a Spotlight. And he says, well, maybe more and more people are going to come forward uh, with this complaint. But then he goes on to say all the things the church has done. Well, the church has put a lot of frosting hmm. over a big pile of manure. And no matter how much frosting you put over it, it's still a pile of manure. The system, you know, there's a point in that movie that is so significant. In fact, when I saw the movie the first time, at this point, I cried. When the editor uh, of the uh, Spotlight, uh, Marty Barron, he says, I mean, they had done all this work and they said, Look, we've got proof uh, that the cardinal knew about this and covered it up. Mm-hmm. And he said, 
I'm not after the priest. I'm not after the cardinal. I'm after the system. And it's the system that has not changed. This system, the church is still struggling and running and, and doing all sorts of cartwheels and maneuvers to cover up and say it doesn't exist. Now, here's the core of the system, that many of the bishops, many of the rectors, many of the uh, confessors in seminaries, many priests and many priests in authority have had or are having sexual relations. They have a sexual background. They have a or have or have had an active sexual life. Now, when you get that uh, culture on the top, naturally, or unnaturally maybe, they're not going to come forward and say uh, that they did this uh, or that they are doing this. Mm -hmm. So they have to cover it up. So if they have it up here, this behavior uh, in that level uh, of uh, authority, then when it comes to dealing with it, sexual activity on a, a minor uh, or minor clerics or so on, what are they going to do? They have to scrabble. You know, there is a system within that hierarchy. It's a system of blackmail where many people in authority who've been there, they, of course, they've worked their way up. They know a lot about each other. And I've heard the word, I mean, I've seen the word written once from a bishop in New Mexico mm. to the papal nuncio in Washington, D.C. There was a priest who was abusing kids in New Mexico. Seventeen recorded uh, different kids who were abused. And the bishop said, to him, I want you to go away and get treatment. I want you to take care of this. And the priest said, Monsignor, he said, Bishop, if you force me to do that, I will reveal that the Bishop of Phoenix, at that time James Rausch, is having sex with minors. And so the Bishop Moreno wrote to the apostolic delegate, and he said, uh, Monsignor is uh, blackmailing me with this. And of course, that priest, he was supported by the church from 1988 to 2002 to the tune of $1,200 a month and given his um, uh, health insurance and his uh, car insurance over all that time, uh, that's the kind of thing. That's just a little vignette of things that happen all over uh, the uh, system uh, in the monastery to which I belong. Uh, two of the abbots uh, were proven. I mean, I've talked with their victims. They were proven to have sex. Uh, the, the first abbot, uh, didn't have sex with minors, but he had sex with the young candidates coming into the monastery. Uh, the other uh, man who was elected abbot uh, 
had sex with three or four people when he was an assistant in a parish. Uh, and then he was sent as a chaplain to convent, and then he was elected abbot. And I'll tell you, my head is so full of, uh, of the proof, the stories, but the proof. I've, I've interviewed uh, the, the victims of these people, and, you know, some of it makes me, yes, makes me almost throw up. My wife is a psychiatrist, and we were going over uh, uh, some documents uh, from the 1990s. Actually, uh, this is a full case that helped me write my book, uh, Sex, Priests, and Power, The Anatomy of a Crisis. And this man, uh, who has his PhD, who uh, has done eventually very well, but he went through this um, process when he was 10 years old, sexually abused by a bishop and the deacon in the parish. And as the bishop was sodomizing this boy, he said, and I quote, God makes certain boys and girls special, and they are the ones who help priests uh, make love. And this is the way God shows his love to you and that you're a special person. He went on to say, if you have to go to confession, you confess that you are too cute and because you are too cute, that's why I have to do this to you. I mean, but it goes on. This man then went within three weeks. He was quasi-orphan. In three weeks, he went to his parish priest. And you know what his parish priest did? He said, oh, you're the special boy that Boland told me about. And then he went on to, to sexually abuse him. Uh, he eventually went to the seminary, and he discovered the whole system within the seminary and with, within, actually, it was the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. He finally uh, went and uh, uh, got some of these priests uh, out of the priesthood. Uh, but... Oh, my, my, my head is so full and my heart just overflows. I don't know really. Uh, I'm 83 years old. I don't know how much more I can take of the pain of these people. And there are, there are thousands in the United States, hundreds of thousands. Father Greeley years ago said he estimated that at least 125,000 victims in the United States existed. That was in the 1990s he wrote that. I don't doubt him. I don't doubt him. This mass, this mass of people, and not only in the United States, uh, in and in Africa. Uh, I haven't treated anyone from South Africa, but I have treated people who grew up in Africa and who were uh, victims of European missionaries. Uh, who came over there. And the same pattern 
of sexual abuse, of selecting uh, boys and girls out to be their special companions and then grooming them and then abusing them under the guise that this is how God loves you, that God makes you uh, this vessel for me. Can you imagine this? I'm going to tell you two things that you probably won't be able to broadcast, but they're absolutely true. One priest uh, who was involved with a 12 or 13-year-old girl, he took what he told her was a consecrated host. And he then touched it to her genitals and he, before he sexually abused her again. And he said, I want to show you this is how Christ loves you. Another priest took his semen when he was abusing these boys and he took the semen and made the sign of the cross over their forehead. These are not out of the ordinary. They come within this horrible twist of taking religion and a child's belief in the priest and in God and the church and say, and using that as an influence uh, to have the child submit sexually to them. And it's so pervasive, but the bishops cannot do or they will not do anything yet because it touches on their own sexual behavior. Uh, it's just true. In 1993, I addressed in Chicago a group of 300 victims of uh, pre-sexual abuse. And I said at that time, the tip of the iceberg that we are, or the problem we're looking at now, sexual abuse of minors, is the tip of the iceberg. And if you follow it to its foundation, it will lead you to the highest corridors of the Vatican. I hardly knew what I was saying then, but I had enough data to know that this was part of the system. I had seminarians who uh, were influenced by uh, priests in their diocese, who then knew of priests in their diocese, who had liaisons with officials over in Rome, sexual liaisons. With, I mean, so, but I didn't know how correct I was. But that is the system. I mean, Richard, you're, des you're describing something that is that is so widespread. That is that is. It sounds like it's not a secret within, within, um, within the Vatican and within Catholic circles. And and yet, when you talked about the monastery, you said my monastery. And it's, you know, I I don't hear hatred in your voice. I I, I'm, I'm curious as to your relationship with Catholicism. And with the church knowing everything that you know, with decades and decades of research and testimonies and and so on, and, and how do you? What are your personal feelings towards Catholicism and the church, given everything that you know? Well, <laughs> Kingsley, I am Catholic. If I were Jewish, <laughs> how could I say I am not Jewish? Even if I had disputes with the rabbis or had some disputes with doctrine or discipline. Uh, I am a Catholic, 
They can excommunicate me, <laughs> but they can't get rid of me. Uh, I will come to the judgment seat of, of God as a Catholic. Do I disagree with uh, the teachings of the church? Absolutely. I think that the church teaches sexual heresy. I think that uh, their uh, attitude toward birth control, toward homosexuality, uh, toward sex before marriage, it's all heretical. Uh, and it's controlled by guilt. I am no longer subject to that. I was at one time. I, I, I am free of that. But I would say uh, with St. Paul, I'm free in Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I believe that we are all one in Jesus Christ, male or female, slave or free, Jew or Greek. I, and I think that male until... Uh, the, the structure comes around to live that out. I don't think we will uh, be living the gospel ideal. I think it's even more than an ideal. I think it's a, it's a mandate. I think that's the goal of the Catholic Church. And I think where the Catholic Church does not, where it does not conform to that, I, I, I say, <laughs> As someone who is hated by the American bishops, explicitly hated by the American bishops, I say, that's all right. They're teaching heresy. Uh, they're not teaching uh, the truth of the gospel. That's a very hard for one little man to say. I have no basis of authority. That's all I have behind me are the facts that I know and the truth that I will stand by. I mean, I'm, I'm quite interested in the excommunication that you brought up, um, and I wanted to ask you more about your relationship, not not emotionally, as I'd asked before, but but now with the Vatican and, and, the, and the Catholic structures in America. I mean, I can't imagine that that a, a, an organization as powerful as that would let you publish this research and speak about this for so long without there being some some consequences. Um, have, have you faced any? Um, any action against your silencing or any tarnishing of your name uh, based on your work? Yes. <laughs> and the point is I've been blackballed, unquestionably. Uh, even when I was in Baltimore, this is uh, 10, 15 years ago, uh, the cardinal there, uh, well, card, first of all, the cardinal Washington, D.C., uh, took my name off uh, uh, one of the initial meetings that was uh, supposed to be uh, considering this project. And then I was appointed to the Governor's Commission in the state of Maryland on sexual abuse. And the Cardinal told the priest who was on the commission, get that man's name off there. Uh, I have forbidden, I live in the Diocese of San Diego, and the bishop who was here uh, forbid me to come to the Chancery Office, that his Chancellor I was commissioned to tell me I could not come to the chancery office, and if I tried to, the bishop would not uh, be there without a lawyer. So, I'm I'm not I'm not well received in those halls. And <laughs> unsurprisingly. <laughs> uh, uh, Richard, I'd, I'd like to just bring us back to this to, to celibacy and ask. I mean, the more you've dug into this, I mean, you've written six books over a long time about this. Um, and I'm curious to what, just 
I mean, it's a silly question, but what's actually going on? What is it about this? What is it about celibacy? One, it sounds like it's not being achieved at all. I mean, not at all, but you're saying one in two priests are not celibate anyway. And then this idea of, of, of sexual abuse of minors, what, what's happening? Because it sounds like it's not one or two, shall we say, weak priests or evil priests that are falling down this 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 path. It seems to be something that's consistently happening. And you mentioned, I scribbled it down somewhere, you mentioned the year, what year did you mention? It was something like the year 60, was that it? Yes, the year 60. Um, yeah, so, I mean, so, clearly this is not this is not something new. So it, it sounds like these things are almost interlinked, intertwined. So I'm very curious to hear your perspective on on why these things are so consistent over the centuries and and what it is about celibacy that leads to this situation. Celibacy as a gift. Uh, there will be people always who will give up their sexual life. Uh, to be dedicated to something that they consider higher, uh, service of humanity, service of science, service of art, whatever it happens to be. There are those people, uh, not only in the Catholic uh, tradition, but in other religious traditions. But you cannot mandate it. And the church has, from the very beginning of the records that we have, uh, again, I go back to the Council of Elvira in 309. Uh, it's a, one of the things that that council said that if even if a priest is married, he should abstain from sex and, of course, abstain from having children. So it's always been linked with control and control of the church's patrimony. Uh, if a priest is married uh, or was married at that time, uh, he would have to take care of his children. And that means that that sustenance would come from the church. And that's always been through. If you look at any of the documents that reiterate uh, celibacy, it's connected with uh, the church's care of the church's property. So it's been an element of control consistently. Not that it doesn't have a religious basis uh, from people uh, who went to the desert to imitate Christ and gave up everything, lived in poverty, mm. lived in chastity. Uh, they gave up everything. There is a spiritual core to the idea of celibacy. But here's the thing. Try and get a definition of celibacy out of a cardinal or a priest. Try it. Try an operational definition. Uh, in my books, uh, I have supplied that, and it's in the Oxford Dictionary of Christian Thought, uh, the definition of celibacy. But most priests don't have a definition of celibacy. Uh, there's a wide range. I've talked to many priests about this, that what they say is, well, if you have sex, uh, if you don't get emotionally involved with the person, it's just a sin, and you go to confession and like masturbation or anything else, it's a sin, but you can be absolved. So if you don't get involved, then you haven't broken your celibacy. <laughs> you know, you, you could uh, have, be the father of two or three children a year and still be celibate by that definition. Uh, that uh, it's, it's crazy. And the church resists this. I went to 
one of the rectors of the seminary I was teaching, and when I really felt I had enough to teach a course on how to be celibate. A course I finally did teach, but he said at that time, oh, no, no, Father so-and-so takes care of that in two weeks in moral theology. Well, you know what? That particular rector and that particular moral theologian teaching in that seminary, I knew eventually were sexually active. You know, see, it, and also another rector told me, he said, well, they have doubts about celibacy when they're ordained. But I tell them, just get ordained and it'll take care of itself. See, the system takes over and the system covers up. Don't forget, key in all of this is sacramental confession. What do priests know about other priests? Go through the system of training from being a novice or a first-year seminarian or theologian. You go to confession and you confide in the priest and you confide your deepest desires, longings, failings, whatever it happens to be. That knowledge is not forgotten. That knowledge is registered in this whole substrata of uh, sexual activity in the church and sexual activity in the clergy. And that's, that's what flows and keeps afloat these people who are on, on the highest level of authority. And once they get in the system, you try and tell somebody in authority that Bishop so-and-so or Cardinal so-and-so is having sex or has had sex. And how do I know it? Because I have the eyewitnesses. These young priests or these seminarians have come and told me. They're, they're not to be doubted. Uh, they're, they're not uh, spreading scandal. What they're saying is to me, look, I'm troubled by this. You know, uh, the cardinal has taken me under his wing and the cardinal has, uh, we go on these fishing trips and I see in the next bed he's having sex with this other young priest. I mean, this is documented. I mean, this isn't speculation. I mean, and this priest who went through this documentation and so on, he went to another diocese. And the chancellor of that diocese said to him, look, Father, you can stay in this diocese and you can, you know, take your sustenance from this diocese. But if you talk to the press, we will crush you. And that's the way from the top. See, one of the things, I never would have been able to do the work that I've done or publish what I've published if I had been trying to uh, be sustained by the church in some manner. It's because I was free and that I had, I, I could tell my story. I understand. Um, uh, Professor, we just go into the last portion of the interview. I'm, I'm really curious and 
Um, I know this is quite personal, but I'm curious about your own experience with celibacy when you were part of the church and and, and what your personal experience was with it. Yes. Uh, I was, in a sense, scared into celibacy. <laughs> but I was celibate uh, for 20 years. Uh, and um, I, I, I told... <laughs> A friend that, oh, it nearly drove me crazy. He said, don't say that to anybody that, you know, but it did. Actually, I'm coming out with an autobiographical little book. It's called I Confess. And, uh, I tell everything in there. My, my early sexual development, my exposure, uh, what I experienced from certain family members, how then really I was, I, what I was, I was scared into celibacy, and I chose it. Uh, I chose it because I felt it was a safe protection for me, so that I would be quote good or acceptable. And um, after all my research, um, it was the system. I could no longer exist in this system. I could no longer teach what the system uh, was teaching or demanded. And uh, so when I gave up celibacy, I, I, I knew it was part of my vocation. Uh, the years in celibacy taught me a great deal. And I do think that the books I've written about celibacy, I think someday will be accepted. I don't think they're accepted among the clergy, no, because I don't think clergy generally want to be celibate. They want to belong to the system but they really don't want celibacy, which is a whole way of life in itself. But uh, I've made my contribution in that and from my sexual experiences mm -hmm. before I was uh, uh, celibate. And then my years of celibacy taught me a great, great deal. And my years as a married man and as a father uh, have also taught me a great deal. So somehow it comes together in a web. To me, it doesn't really seem like discrete uh, parts of my life. It seems like the web of my life is quite consistent. At least, I think in the mind of God it is. <laughs> um, Richard, when when reading your writing, it's uh, um, it sounds like you're almost empathetic with some of the priests that are that are that are in the system. Um, which I found interesting is is that it in in society I mean rape and child abuse is so is so frowned upon and and often perpetrators will be I mean demonized whether or not they're proven guilty or not it's it's the automatic response. I was quite interested to to find to not find that in your writing. I think that that was quite surprising. Is that is that deliberate? You deliberately try to remain neutral and empathetic, or is is it just based on your life in the monastery something that comes naturally? You know, it comes naturally. I haven't intended it, but uh, I have struggled with humanness. What does it mean to be human? We we do come with uh, a divided heart. Uh, St. Paul says, you know, I want this is what is better, but I do what which is less good. I mean, that's our human condition. And uh, that these men struggle with this, uh, yes. I think it comes quite naturally to me because they are human beings 
there but for the grace of God go I. Uh, that this is a human struggle, which I think the church refuses to, to, to uh, deal with. The church is like the Sanhedrin. It is like the Pharisees. It, it is not terribly different in operation from the time of Christ. And uh, their desire to look good uh, rather than to just be good is, is, is something that I think we struggle with. I, no. Sorry. Um, Go ahead. Um, I was just going to mention on this topic, I mean, I'm curious what you think it would take um, to, to cleanse the church, for lack of a better word. Do you, do you think it's possible? Do you think it's beyond any attempt of trying to, to, to clear it of so many, so many centuries and decades of, of misdeeds and secrets? Um, or do you think there's some hope to actually cleanse it and come clean and, and fix the structures? And if so, how do you think or how would you recommend they go about that? I believe in the evolution of religion. I believe, and I, I've dealt, I've dipped very <laughs> deeply into the history of the church mm-hmm. and from this angle. I think it is changing. I think it has to change. And I think these are some of the things that are going to need to change. First of all, mandated celibacy has to go. You can't command uh, people uh, to be sexually deprived. You, you can't expect uh, to take the average good man and put him in sexual deprivation and then cultivate him in a homosocial atmosphere where all the power is in the hands of men and then say, well, come out as a natural man. As Aeneas said, the glory of God is man fully human. You're not going to be fully human that way. So celibacy, mandated celibacy has to go. There will always be some people who want to be celibate and serve in that way. Uh, the uh, exclusion of women from the ordination to the priesthood and from all structures of authority, that has to go. I do believe that those things will come. And I believe we're in as profound a reformation now uh, of the church structure as we were at the time of Luther. Uh, I believe it's just as profound. <laughs> Somebody asked me, do you expect that in your lifetime? He said to me, you know, I'm bringing up my children Catholic. I said, well, maybe in your children's time. But uh, at 83, I don't expect these changes. But I do expect, I do think that they are coming. I think this is what's fulminating. Uh, uh, in the heart of the church. I think this is what's fulminating in what they call the, the fidelium, uh, uh, the census fidelium. Uh, I, I think that people um, in, in the church uh, are, are moving toward this in terms of their thinking and in terms of their desire. I mean, a lot, a lot due to your work. <laughs> Um, in, in putting this, the spotlight, you know, excuse the pun, and, and, and continuously publishing your research and you continue to fight this, you know, this, this, this fight. And I'm, I'm curious as to the, the publicity you're getting through the movie and the Pulitzer a couple of years ago and, and whether you think, um, that's doing 
do, uh, that's accelerating this and, and more more people outside the church knowing about it and then making it more difficult for the church to ignore these things. Do you think that us having these conversations and the continuous media exposure, do you think that's accelerating it anyway? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, look, the changes that have come so far, uh, even the small changes within the church uh, 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 in their writings and so on, have not come because the hierarchy has not been proactive. It's been reactive, reactive to the victim's voice, uh, which the media has carried, uh, reactive to the legal system, uh, and certainly uh, reactive to uh, uh, the media. Uh, the media has done more good in this regard uh, it's like Luther and printing at, at that time. Uh, Luther uh, really was very successful in his Reformation because of the printing press, because he could print these little uh, folios uh, that got his ideas out. This is what the press is doing now. Uh, uh, it's indispensable uh, as a, a vehicle of the truth. And I'm so proud uh, to have been associated even a little way uh, with this group of people uh, at the Boston Globe uh, who really fought through this. And I do think the movie is having an impact. Well, even as I said, I, I read a letter from uh, the head of the church in uh, South Africa talking about the movie and certain more people are coming forward. And I think the movie does give more people strength uh, to come forward uh, and to speak up. You know, in the movie where I said uh, 6% of priests they should expect, eventually in Boston they found over 10% of the priests active at that time had been sexually active with children. And... Uh, so this kind of investigative journalism and this kind of work that you're doing uh, does us all a service by saying, look, abuse, trauma is a fact in our society, even where we expect it less uh, among uh, policemen, among teachers, among priests, among ministers. Uh, it is there and it is in families. Let us face it and do something about it. Let us give better to our children. Uh, let us give them better strength. Let us protect them from trauma. And certainly we should protect them from trauma in the place where we say is the ultimate uh, sense of morality and goodness uh, and kindness, uh, our church. Um, absolutely. Um, Richard, one of my final questions is just I'm glad that you brought up um, um, sort of the other side of the coin. We've spoken a lot about the priest and the system, but but you know less about external and, and that society. And and part of the complicitness, if that's even a word, um, with these with these crimes and these sins is that even people outside the church, uh, so people in schools and other people who know aren't aren't coming forward and doing their part as much as they should. So, I mean, externally, what, what, what can we do? I don't know, it's terrible to put the, 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 
the blame now on the victims and the, and the families of the victims and so on. But, you know, such is life. What can we do for those who are not part of the, the church and external and regularly in society? What can we do to make sure that, you know, this problem is being addressed head on? Speak up and tell the truth. Tell your own truth. You know, I, as I said, I, published, I am publishing this book called I Confess. And some people said, oh, you know, this is going to harm your reputation. I said, at 83, that's not a very persuasive. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think you'll be fine. <laughs> but I, I really, I, I told a friend that I'm doing this because I have encouraged other people to talk about their trauma, those who have been victims of trauma and those who have caused trauma. If we speak up and we tell the truth, we then have a chance of protecting children. Uh, the darkness breeds all sorts of horrible monsters. Let us go into the light, the light of humanity, the light that we are sexual beings, the light that we are struggling beings, that we are uh, not made whole, we are not wonderful and pure just because we say we want to be. We have to say we're struggling. This is our struggle. This is how I've done it. You know, join me in the truth. You know, join me in humanity. We are one, all one in Jesus Christ. We're sinners. As the Pope said, I love that. When Pope Francis, in his first interview, they said, who are you? And he said, I'm a sinner. What a wonderful statement. If he does nothing else, if he stands for that, what a wonderful tribute to uh, the leadership of the church. I am a sinner. If we just accept our own sinfulness and strive beyond it, not give in to it, but strive beyond it, we have one step in the right direction, one step in the way, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I almost put up my hand and said, Amen. Um, Richard, no, I, I, I can't think of a better place to end this. Um, so it's just a big thank you for you for your continuous research and relentless research at personal cost in pursuing the truth and the light, as you've mentioned, and to getting getting the word out there. So it's a really big thank you to you, not only for that, but for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you, Kingsley. Fantastic. If you're just tuning in, that was our interview with uh, Richard Seip, um, sociologist and former priest who's published some excellent books and groundbreaking research about sexual abuse and the issues with celibacy in the Catholic Church. Thanks for tuning in. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. This is cliffcentral.com.